Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Good day, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Strategy International podcast. This is the podcast produced for Strategy International, a global think tank and consulting firm that brings together great minds from all over the world to discuss, exchange, and analyze issues of global interest in the areas of international policy and politics, the economy, uh, defense, security, uh, the environment, and much, much more. Um, do me a favor and head on over to strategyinternational.org for all information on this great um, uh, think tank. Uh, and of course, for all the back catalog of all these amazing podcasts. Speaking of amazing guests, we have uh, another great one today. Um, she's a professor of uh, European law and reform uh, and the head of the uh, School of Law at the University of Central Lancashire in Cyprus. She's the director of the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence on the rule of law and European values. She's also an expert, of course, in EU law and the European Commission and all its different agencies. And uh, last but not least, she's a senior consultant for European and international law over at Strategy International. Professor Stephanie Lola Shailu, how are you? Good morning, George. I'm very fine. Thank you very much. I'm Thank very you. warm. I come from Cyprus. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you're a very busy person. We've been trying on and off to get this episode going, and I'm glad that we finally found uh, some time. Uh, so the time that you're taking away from uh, everything else that you're doing is very much appreciated to share some thoughts uh, with all our viewers and all our listeners. Um, greatly appreciated. Uh, I want to I want to start I want to start this off because while while preparing for this podcast, I I was thinking a lot about you know, the country where I'm from here in Canada and, of course, in the U.S., where we're used to this model of governance where, um, you know, for example, in Canada, it's uh, it's a confederation of uh, states or in our case here, provinces. Um, they're not independent. Of course, they have their own jurisdictions on certain matters, but uh, collectively they form one independent uh, sovereign nation, which is Canada or the U.S., for example. And then I was comparing that to the EU, where it is a federation, but in this case, uh, it, it's a federation of independent sovereign states that form this, uh, this union. And I kept thinking, my God, politically, socially, economically, any way you think of it, here in Canada, things get so complicated, yet everything is under one umbrella called Canada. The fact that for over 70 years, there's this union over there that has managed to keep everyone pretty much united, even though they are all independent. They all have different political ideologies. They all have different electoral systems. They all have different laws. Uh, and yet they there is this cohesion under this union over there in Europe. I mean, just that in itself must be a tremendous success story. Yes, George, thank you for the introduction. Um, cohesion is the right word. You've used the right word. So if I can just rewind a little bit, um, the European Union is not a federation, and that's probably the difference uh, with, with, with Northern America. It does look like a federation, you're right about this, and it has many of the attributes of a federation. Uh, but the European Union is actually built on the willingness 
of uh, sovereign states to pull over some of their sovereignty and uh, to transfer to these what we call supranational level. Mm-hmm. So the supranational level, this is something you're familiar with because that's exactly what's happening in North America. There is a, a, a you know, a state level and a suppressed state, le- state level, which is the federal level. Mm-hmm. So you, you understand that pooling of sovereignty idea. So the idea is quite similar in the sense that, yes, it's a pooling of sovereignty, but uh, the member states of the European Union uh, have only agreed to pool some of the sovereignty in specific areas. So that does not make it, it cannot make it a political union or at least a full political union that could lead to a federation. Mm-hmm. In short. It, it, it's, it, it's quite amazing, though, because, you know, over, over here in Canada, we know that, like you said, I mean, yes, there is one federal state, but we know that everything works because we're under that banner if you want to call it right we're all canadian uh there's nothing separating us whereas in europe for example and we've seen that more and more recently with um with brexit where you have national interests that sometimes uh uh take over and i i, I mean i don't know you you're the expert here but i would argue that europeans are much more national centric than they are Eurocentric. I mean, uh, if you ask anyone from Italy or from France or from Greece or from Germany, they will tend to support their own camp before supporting, you know, the EU as this concept. Yes, George, that's that's true, but that is understandable to the extent that, uh, um, as I said, not all the sovereignty has been, has been pulled to the supranational level. So if we want to take a more specific example and uh, you touched upon two very important things first of all you you touched upon citizenship um as you know every national of a member state of the european union is is by the same token an eu national an eu citizen mm-hmm. and uh, of course if you remove the nationality the the, the the this the nationality of a member state then you also remove by default the eu citizenship you cannot be an eu citizen and not be a national of an eu member state this is what i'm trying to uh, you can acquire the rights of eu citizens by being married for example by being a third country national let's say canadian and being married to an eu national what you can do you can acquire eu citizenship rights but you cannot uh, be an EU citizen without being uh, a national or one of the member states. So in that sense, you're right that the national level comes first. And once you know how it works in the European Union, you understand better why uh, the uh, national level comes first. However, um, we all have rights as EU citizens, those of us who are EU citizens. So a lot of those rights are actually uh, attached to the fact that we are EU citizens and therefore someone who is not a EU citizen doesn't have those those rights. So that's something that people understand. Let me give you a simple example. Consumer rights, very simple. Uh, A lot of the uh, rights of consumers have been created at the EU level and uh, are applicable across the whole of the European Union and protect consumers, including uh, online. Ah, that's 
one example. Passengers' rights could be another example that people do understand. Uh, the fact that you know you are flying with uh, with airlines that are um, that sit in the European Union, and the fact that you are an EU citizen gives you some uh, protection. Uh, privacy and uh, personal data protection is another one. EU citizens are protected uh, very much by the GDPR, which is a legal framework that does not really exist anywhere else. Now. Just to say a few words about Brexit. Um, yes, not only Brexit, about the, the, the feeling that you know nationalism is on the rise in the European Union, as you indicated. Um, you are right about this. And uh, this is probably uh, something that everyone must take into account. Um, however, the, the same way member states have agreed to pool their sovereignty, the same way they can decide to recall that sovereignty. So this is what we would call uh, withdrawal from the European Union. And this is what happened in the case of the UK. So the UK withdrawal or Brexit is an example of, of calling back the sovereignty due to nationalist pressure, maybe even we can say populist pressure, and uh, not putting forward sufficiently the rights that have been promoted at the EU level. Mm -hmm. Well, there's enough arguments out there to, to suggest that perhaps that wasn't the right move for them, but that's a whole other story. It's a whole other podcast. Um, before we get to some uh, questions that I have here for you, because you are an expert in the European um, in the European Commission. Now, for the people that are listening that perhaps don't know um, organizationally how the European Union is formed, can you just briefly explain to them what is the European Commission with the importance it has in the organization chart of the EU? Right. So if if you were to compare the European Union to a state, let's say, then you need to apply the same uh, separation of powers as you would apply in, in, in a national state. So you've got the executive, the legislative, and, uh, and the judiciary. Um, the European Commission would correspond to the executive. Uh, the difficulty there is that uh, the European Commission is part of the executive, but it's not the only part of the executive because, of course, European Union is made out of 27 different nations, as you said it before. So they play a role. Uh, but because, as I said before, parts of the sovereignty of the member states, part of the decision-making process of the member states has been pulled to the EU level, the European Commission is able to act on their behalf. That is number one, if you want. Uh, and number two, the European Commission is able to act uh, on behalf of the European Union when the EU treaties provide for it. So it is the uh, doer, if you want, it is the initiator and the action maker in a lot of fields uh, in the European Union. Um can you discuss some recent or notable reforms or initiatives undertaken by the European Commission to 
to promote legal harmonization and integration within the EU because uh, uh, this is exactly what we start off with, right? I mean, how do we juggle between national interests and the EU? Uh, and of course, there's a lot of factors that bring everything together. Uh, it's a it's an enormous machine that needs to be constantly well oiled. Um, but yeah, what are some decisions that have been making, uh, that have been made? Sorry to um, to promote this uh, this harmony and this cohesion uh, between the different states within the EU. You're right, um, George. We, we we usually use the word harmonization, or we use the word approximation, or sometimes we use the word convergence uh, and coordination because there are different levels, basically, of this cohesion that you described. Um, so, first of all, let me just say a few words about uh, how harmonization is achieved. And also, let me say that there are different uh, types of harmonization. So, uh, the ultimate idea of harmonization is that laws are the same across all the member states. Ideally, this is what we want to achieve, but it's not doable everywhere to the extent that uh, not every area of decision-making is under the umbrella of the EU. A lot of the decision-making has remained uh, with the EU member states. For example, if you think about uh, fiscal, well, if you think about economic policy in particular, um, member states want to keep, uh, maintain their purse. Uh, we can talk about the Eurozone, but that's, that's something different. So first of all, there are different levels of harmonization and there are different tools of harmonization. So it is in the interest of everyone in the European Union that uh, laws that protect consumers, for example, or laws that uh, um, certify goods are as harmonized as possible. Okay, so that's one example of where harmonization would make sense, full harmonization. But there are different types of harmonization. Um, you know, there, there must be some obstacles there because, I mean, you're not dealing with just, you know, a handful of states here. I mean, there, there's 27. What are some of the main challenges or obstacles faced, you know, by the Commission, the European Commission, in, um, in implementing and enforcing European law across the member states? Yes, George, of course there is. So let me say a few words about integration now, which is what I wanted to uh, explain once we've explained what harmonization is. So we spoke already about the phenomenon of uh, European integration and is this, this idea that altogether we, we act and we pull sovereignty in the same direction and we try to do things in the same direction. That is the idea of convergence and of European integration. Now, because member states may have different political agenda and different uh, environmental or let's say different environments back at home, it may be more or less difficult for member states to follow that European integration movement. So Brexit is an example, but uh, the financial crisis that we had uh, about a decade ago is another example where member states uh, were looking at their purse. And of course, depending on the extent to which they were affected by the financial crisis, they reacted differently. Uh, another example of difficulties would be the migration crisis. Mm -hmm. Again, depending on how affected each member state is, 
they are likely to be to react differently. So in a sense, there are multiple paths to European integration. There is the hard path and there is the softer path. And the European Commission has uh, at its disposal quite a lot of tools to ensure that member states uh, are following. Uh, but don't forget that the European Union is an international organization. It is a very integrated international organization, but it remains one. So it is very important to have the consensus of member states, and it's very important to get them to support measures that are taken by the European Commission via the various decision-making mechanisms and bodies. Otherwise, you're likely to have um, cleavages and divides within the European Union, and that is not good at all. I can get into the, you know, the description of a few mechanisms, but uh, let's see what other question you've got for me. Yeah, I, 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 now that you brought it up, I, I just want to go back to to to, uh, to what you mentioned about migration because I mean the last couple of years, this, in my opinion, has been a, a significant challenge uh, for the EU, especially the bordering countries, Italy uh, and Greece, uh, particularly. Um, I know that immigration obviously is much more of a national uh, jurisdiction. I'm not sure if there are um, EU. Um, if if there's anything in the EU legislation that imposes uh, anything on uh, on the national policies, um, but what are some of the mechanisms or procedures that are in place to address conflicts or disputes between, you know, the European Commission and member states regarding the interpretation or the implementation of the European law? In the case of countries, for example, like Greece or Europe, that have their domestic policy in terms of migration or immigration, and you have this flow of migrants coming in, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a humanitarian disaster. Um, yes. How do we juggle that? What takes precedence and what, what, uh, um, what takes primacy uh, in yeah. terms of uh, the approach? Yeah, primacy is the right word. Uh, so uh, the basic principle is that uh, EU law stands above national law. That is the basic principle. We, we use the word primacy rather than supremacy because uh, that idea of, uh, of the, of the primacy of, of European law leaves leeway in certain instances where member states have a good reason to still want to apply their own constitutional arrangements as opposed to the EU. But how it works is that usually uh, we start by looking at the EU treaties. So we start by looking at the extent to which the EU, via its various institutions and bodies, has competence to deal with a specific matter. So migration and immigration, for example, indeed, are um, competencies that are shared between the European Union and uh, the member states, and they're complex to understand. Now, uh, just to give you an example, if you can still hear me, not sure yes, you can. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. So just to give you an example for regarding migration and immigration. Yes, the uh, local national laws are important in that aspect and national policies are important in that aspect, but there is an EU broad, EU wide system, uh, particularly of how we should uh, welcome migrants on humanitarian ground. 
And on this uh, account, we also, of course, uh, follow uh, European international conventions and international agreements to uh, tackle the humanitarian crisis, particularly in the Mediterranean Sea, which is uh, an EU uh, uh, problem, an EU, uh, not only uh, an African issue, but it's also an EU uh, problem. So it does uh, create some tension, political tension, that's for sure. Um, the same we could say about the financial crisis. It did create a lot of uh, um, cleavages across the European Union, depending on where you're located. So very often it's between north and south of the European Union, or west and east of the European Union, depending on uh, the problem at stake. Um, but what happens is that in addition to what is written in the treaties, in the EU treaties, and it is interpreted by the Court of Justice of the European Union, it is possible and sometimes necessary for the uh, executive of the European Union, which is composed of the European Commission, but also of the uh, Council, of ministers and the European Council to decide that they create a new instrument, an additional system, system, a blueprint, a roadmap dealing with specific crisis, specific issues. The pandemic is an example, financial crisis is an example, or the migration crisis is an example. So very often when there is a, a, a serious issue and crisis in the European Union, then we cannot apply, strictly speaking, the EU treaties because sometimes it's not sufficiently covered in the treaties. Sometimes it would require a treaty amendment, which of course would mean that all the member states would need to agree. And of course, treaty amendments take time. So very, very often we have seen in the past, and we see it even today, that um, there is what we call competence creeping. In other words, uh, EU, EU uh, integration or EU competencies are on the rise and they are spreading because of the nature of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. I, I want to touch, um, just to bounce right off what you're saying here, um, what happens with um, uh, legal amendments or even maybe constitutional amendments that countries want to implement uh, and that are uh, that are um, EU member states as well. We're seeing an example in Eastern Europe, for example, in Poland and in Hungary, um, who have been sort of reprimanded uh, by the EU because of certain uh, 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 legislation that uh, that has been passed. Um, we spoke about the primacy of law having uh, uh, being always at the EU level, um, but in this case, where individual, you know, the, at the uh, at the national uh, level, when there's these sort of legal uh, changes that are happening, it must be complicated to always have to refer back to the European law in order to enforce national uh, national law. Is it not? Yes, you're right about this. So there are several things we have to say here. Uh, the first thing is that um, um, let's let's try to keep it simple, as simple as possible. So when a country uh, joins the European Union, in other words, when a state is a candidate country, 
the one of the first criteria that we need to be met in order for that country to become a candidate country is that uh, principles of the rule of law must be uh, followed and must be complied with. And uh, those principles of the rule of law and those principles and values of the rule of law, well, they don't stop applying once you enter the European Union, right? So uh, the assumption was and has been all this time that once a candidate country becomes an EU member state, the principles and values of the rule of law continue seamlessly to run in that country. In the past couple of decades, we have seen examples of uh, EU member states not adhering sufficiently to principles of values of the rule of law that are enshrined in Article 2 of the EU treaty. Um, examples could be the struggle of power between the executive and the judiciary in particular in countries like uh, the ones you mentioned, Poland and Hungary, but not only. Um, other examples could be uh, restrictions of the freedom of expression of the media or of vulnerable groups or, or marginalized groups. Other examples actually may have to do with the restriction of freedoms, freedoms of, of, of non-discrimination in particular. So these are all serious and, and grave um, violation, potential violation of principles and values of the European Union based on the rule of law. So the way to deal with this, you're right, there are different levels. First of all, as I said before, we need the support of EU member states. The European Union cannot uh, function without the support of EU member states. So you try to start softly. And uh, the European Commission tries to uh, negotiate with uh, the EU member states at stake whether, you know, uh, a specific law uh, could be, for example, uh, uh, removed because it is potentially contrary to uh, Article 2 of the, of the EU treaty. So this takes time. This is based on negotiations. It is based on legal opinions and it is based on, on very technical argumentation. If this doesn't work, the European Commission and the European Union as a whole have other tools, of course, against any member state who uh, engages into grave violations of human rights, uh, including rule of law principles and values. Um, and uh, this is the stage that we have reached with countries like Poland and Hungary to have to take them to court to the Court of Justice of the European Union for violating um, specific uh, rule of law principles and specific provisions of the, uh, of the EU treaties. But this is not sufficient. You need the support of the national courts to do this. So mm -hmm. there are mechanisms in the EU treaties to ensure that the enforcement of EU law is done at the local level, national level, and EU level, as you just mentioned it. At the EU level, we are looking at the overall enforcement. We are looking at the overall uniform interpretation of EU law. But at the national level, we are very interested in actually implementing properly EU law and enforcing EU law. So there are uh, treaty provisions that actually, and, and not only treaty provisions, there are cases from the Court of Justice of European Union 
that explains very clearly to national judges what their duties under EU law are. And that would include potentially having to disregard a decision of a national court if Mm -hmm. that that decision was against EU law. So the responsibility of national judges is very important and they form part of what we call the EU judiciary. Mm -hmm. In the case of Hungary and Poland, I know that this whole issue started because of national judicial reforms. Um, uh, We mentioned that there were uh, there was a disciplinary um, procedures uh, that were uh, put in place uh, by the EU. What is happening? Are these countries now in uh, going back on these reforms? Uh, Where are we in that level? Uh, Is the EU succeeding at reversing these decisions that the national uh, parliaments have made? Yes. So. Poland and Hungary need to be differentiated from each other. They don't have the same uh, issues with respect to the rule of law. But overall, yes, it is uh, around violations of uh, of, uh, fundamental human rights and rule of law principles and values, including judicial independence. In other words, the fact that the judges must remain independent from uh, the political system. Um, Well, there are quite a few, actually, particularly for Poland, there are many, many cases before the Court of Justice of the European Union that have been decided already uh, and, 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 and are, or are pending, and also for Hungary. And they, they point to what we call infringement proceedings. They point to the violations by those countries of, of specific uh, principles uh, uh, that are you know, supported by the European Union and by EU law. How easy is it to uh, enforce this, those decisions into the, the said member state? But as I said, the decisions must be enforced by national authorities. So they must be enforced by the judges, the national judges, if they are the ones who asked the Court of Justice of the European Union to interpret. Mm-hmm. If it is the European Commission that has taken Poland or Hungary to court for infringement proceedings, then it is uh, down to the uh, Polish government or the Hungarian government or any other government, because it's not only about Poland and Hungary, Mm -hmm. to enforce the decisions of the Court of Justice of the European Union. And there are penalties if this is not done. So the European Commission's role does not stop Mm -hmm. there. Actually, it is also a role of monitoring. One thing that I would like to add is that um, we haven't spoken a lot about the role of the European Parliament and of uh, national parliaments. You mentioned it. You you mentioned the national parliaments. The role of uh, the legislative is is unfortunately uh, quite absent. And this is one of the characteristics of dealing with a crisis situation that a lot of the power is put into uh, the side of the executive. And uh, the legislative is actually uh, kept out because emergency measures are needed, because uh, um, necessity uh, dictates specific um, uh, behaviors and measures to be taken. And then we realize later, or we assess later whether those measures were indeed proportionate and they were legal. 
Right. So all of the parliament is a, 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 a problem. It needs to be brought back to the fore because the parliament and the legislative power is the power that will demand accountability and transparency of measures being taken. Uh, and, and we don't insist enough on that. But the role of the European Parliament is also very important. And in the past few years, the European Parliament has been quite active in trying to promote the rule of law across EU member states, including by uh, asking relevant MEPs uh, for, you know, uh, well, reporting to be able to be, be accountable and report to the European Parliament. And between the European Parliament and the European Commission, in the past few years, we have seen the, the birth of a new instrument, which is called the rule of law conditionality. Mm -hmm. And that instrument is meant to withdraw the possibility of EU member states to benefit from financial assistance from the European Union if they continue the violating rule of law and fundamental rights principle gravely. So this is a new tool, and uh, this tool is to be seen together with the efforts of the European Commission in the past few years to monitor rule of law principles and values in all the member states, because I must emphasize that all EU member states have issues with rule of law principles and values. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the the Euro uh, the European Parliament and and I have this question because there is um, an issue that is uh, I think currently being discussed uh, that has uh, uh, brought forth certain uh, a certain suspicion and uh, you know talks uh, at the national level. Um, I'm talking about the the EU electoral reform uh, mm -hmm. and the way that uh, Euro parliamentarians uh, get elected and there is this proposition to create a transnational uh, list of candidates that would be able to campaign throughout Europe. Uh, and there's a lot of debate happening because traditionally, I mean, maybe you can go into this, but for the people listening, um, European parliamentarians are elected in their national state, right? Uh, depending on the different uh, political parties that are in place uh, and such. Uh, and I, I just want to understand this uh, the, the, this proposal that has been made. If I understand correctly, there's there's a list of 28 candidates that would be um, that, that would be uh, allowed to campaign in every country. So, for example, if you're in Italy, instead of uh, electing Italian uh, candidates to uh, to represent Italy at the European uh, at the European Parliament, you would have, for example, a Spanish candidate that would be able to get elected um, from the citizens of uh, of Italy. Is that is that is that correct? Is that a correct assessment? I I am not aware of this, George. I mean, there are multiple proposals uh, around uh, how to reform. Uh, the uh, the voting of the European Parliament. So that's one example. I think we just need to say a few things. First of all, we need to remind everyone that uh, it is a right that all EU citizens acquired to be able to vote directly for European parliamentary elections. It mm -hmm. wasn't a right that existed when the EEC was created so that's something that must be uh, mm. taken very seriously. It's a right that was uh, we fought for, all of us, and that we must preserve at all costs. Uh, 
The other thing we need to say is that in addition to Article 2 of the EU Treaty, there are a number of other provisions in the EU treaties that promote principles and values. One of the principles is respect for national identity. And the respect for national identity is expressed uh, in different ways. And what could argue that it's expressed in your choice uh, of, of political representation or civil representation at your national level, at your local level. Uh, also in the EU treaties, there are provisions, of course, on what EU citizens can do. And one of the rights of EU citizens, of course, is the right to vote where they live. So, for example, I am French, but I live in Cyprus. Therefore, I am entitled to vote for the European parliamentary elections in Cyprus because this is where it's closer to me at this mm -hmm. point. Um, so these are very important tools, which in my mm -hmm. view are sufficient to give um give uh, rise to proper um, participatory democracy. I think the problem is probably elsewhere. The problem is definitely with populism and the rise of nationalism. The problem is also probably with uh, uh, raising awareness and educating people, uh, Europeans particularly, but not only everyone who lives on the EU ground as to what their rights are and how they should take advantage of this and how they should participate more, more actively to democracy. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say, we have not really spoken about it yet, but it's another important principle, is the one of solidarity. The principle of solidarity, we spoke about humanitarian crisis before. So the principle of solidarity is a principle that is undermined or underestimated in the European Union. Mm. It appears, however, in the EU treaties. So in the name of solidarity, you could think of many, many different ways to improve how we live together and how we take decisions together. I'm, I'm all in favor of this um, because solidarity must not be taken as a very narrow term applying just for in case of financial assistance, for example, or in case of uh, uh, rescue, uh, emergency rescue needs. It must be a much wider term, uh, which um, encompasses so many other different uh, terms, such as res respect, cohesion, equality, and so on. So I, I, would, I would also encourage what you're saying, which is to, to rethink together how we can best be represented mm -hmm. uh, at the EU level. But I think what we really need to work on, uh, particularly in at the periphery of the European Union, because not everybody lives in Brussels uh, or Luxembourg, but you know we have people living in Cyprus, for example, or at the border in Romania and Bulgaria border with, uh, with Ukraine. I mean, these people, how engaged are they? How do they participate to the democratic debates? Mm -hmm. These are the people that we need to be able to assist and show solidarity to. But I think that's where the whole debate, and I, I mean, I don't know how close uh, this electoral reform is to happening, and I don't know if uh, there are other uh, propositions. That's the one that, that, that I've been following, um, because there's a big difference between you being French and living in Cyprus 
and voting for the European Parliament uh, uh, in the European parliamentary elections in Cyprus because that's where you live. And uh, so there's a difference between that and the European Union Union imposing some other candidate from another country to be elected out of Cyprus, where they're perhaps maybe disconnected from the national reality, uh, from the, the national party system, um, and from the reality on the ground, which is pretty much uh, where European citizens are much more connected. You mentioned uh, Bulgaria and Romania, and the, 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 the difficulty or uh, the difficulty that they're having given the, 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 the current context of, of the war, um it would be very hard to imagine someone that's come from the complete opposite end of europe like from portugal um to get elected in these countries where they're completely disconnected from the local realities um the argument i think that i've been seeing more and more is that there's this attempt from the european union to create this european kind of identity where it doesn't really matter where you're from you can get elected anywhere because we are one big union and i think that pretty much poses a problem maybe it has to do with populism maybe it has to do with the fact that there's still this growing support for um nationalism versus uh you know the the the, the whole idea of the european union yes george of course you're right so that's why i said i mean as the as the eu treaties stand today what you're describing is of course not doable uh, it's not doable on, on procedural grounds because, you know, the, the way uh, EU parliamentary elections are, are conducted are actually written down in mm -hmm. the EU. But it's also against some of the principles of, uh, of the European Union, particularly the one that I identified of uh, national identity. Uh, so, yes, uh, there would be plenty of room to, to discuss this. As I said, I believe that the mechanisms available in the EU treaties to actually um, be represented at the EU level are uh, sufficient and they need to be fully exploited. And at the moment, I don't think that they are fully exploited, giving rise to a lot of different ideas. The It's good to have ideas, but... Amending EU treaties at the moment is not something that can be easily done. It, it can't be easily done because we keep transiting from one crisis to another. Um, the last, in my view, uh, main momentum we had to have a major revision of the EU institutions in the EU treaties, including perhaps looking at how European Parliament's elections function, was when we were considering Turkey's uh, accession to the EU, because by considering Turkey's accession to the EU, there was there was a, a vital need, for, uh, a crucial need to actually think about the how the EU institutions would function with such a large new member state. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of discussion there, but as the prospects of, of Turkey joining the European Union faded away, uh, about um, between, you know, from 20 years ago to like 10 years ago, it started you know, fading away and then it, it actually was non-existing for a long time. Then obviously that major reform that we may have been expected or expecting from the European Union actually faded away too. And the past 20 years have been marked with many different uh, emergency situations whereby we had no time to think about 
amending the treaties. Mm-hmm. And there was pro- probably not enough political will because the idea was actually to, to deal with a crisis. And this is where, as I said, a lot of what was built to handle crisis uh, and manage crisis across um, spectrum was actually outside of the EU treaties, which is very problematic because that means that if it's outside of the, of the EU treaties, that it falls outside of the scrutiny mm-hmm. of the people. It falls outside of the scrutiny of the, of the courts as well. So it is an issue that it's outside of the EU. And at some point, we will have to recollect all this and amend the EU treaties. And at this point, we will probably also see how we can modernize the EU institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to take up uh, too much of your time, Professor. I know that you're very busy. Uh, on a final note, uh, what do you see as the future, uh, as f- potential future challenges or maybe even opportunities for, you know, uh, European law uh, and reform? Uh, and, you know, how do you envision the role of the European Commission evolving in response to these dynamics? Okay, thanks, George. Well, there are obviously a lot of dynamics that are uh, external to the European Union. So they are world dynamics, but they're also dynamics that are internal to the European Union. And I think this is where we are probably, uh, the EU is something unique because it has all those uh, internal and external uh, uh, factors that uh, it must take into account. I think that EU enlargement remains uh, a, a top priority and a top challenge, particularly given the external uh, factors at the moment with Ukraine, particularly, but also with the Balkans. So I think EU enlargement is probably uh, still on top of the agenda. And the European Commission has a major role to play in that because it is the one that actually drives the process of EU enlargement uh, on behalf of the member states. And of course, once it is brought at a satisfactory level, then the EU member states have to vote and then they have to unanimously agree. But all the prep work is done by the European Commission. The other area that I think uh, is, is growing at the moment is what I would call the sustainability of EU membership. So EU membership is not a done deal, is not a taken for granted. And I think that member states uh, are starting understanding it and that it comes uh, with duties and obligations that we all knew, but perhaps with new meanings, uh, Mm -hmm. revised. And I think the word word of sustainability, taken from sustainable development, uh, makes, makes a lot of sense when you think about it in the context of EU membership, because each member state has their own issues, national issues, there could be geopolitical issues if you think about Cyprus, there could be environmental issues that are coming on the rise. So uh, I think that, yes, uh, the the sustainability of EU membership, that probably means that EU membership may change meaning or may change its form, uh, is something that is a, a, a challenge for the future. I want to thank you uh, so much again uh, for the time that you've taken to uh, to enlighten us uh, with your knowledge, uh, all the viewers, of course, and the listeners. Um, there's, uh, there's there's nothing much more left for me to say. I, I really I really appreciate the conversation that we had. 
um uh, and i want to once again invite everyone to visit strategyinternational.org for all information as well as the back catalog of all these podcasts and more uh productions that have been uh, uh produced uh, in, in the last couple of months um professor thanks again uh really appreciate it uh, it was uh, it was a valuable uh, uh conversation uh that i appreciate much much the pleasure was all mine george we can uh, repeat uh, repeat that again anytime thank, thank you very you. much thank you so much take care everyone and i'll see you all in the next episode bye everyone thank you for listening to the strategy international podcast produced by pod mtl for strategy international feel free to subscribe rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.